Christmas is my favorite holiday, and I think the sanctuary looks so beautiful when it's decorated like this. Don't you? I just, I love it. I love the timeless decorations and traditions and carols. Last night, my family and I did one of our favorite traditions. We just drove around looking at Christmas lights. And we drove by the Savannah Valley Memorial Garden, Russell, where, where you've got the nativity scene put up there. And it's such a beautiful thing. If you've not driven by and looked at that at nighttime, please go by there and, and see that. It is, it is truly amazing. Uh, and, and I reflected last night on how neat it is that in that very same spot where that nativity is, to remind us of Jesus' birth, on Easter Sunday we'll gather together there as a community to celebrate His resurrection, that same place. You know, last Sunday we talked about uh, the Christmas that would be, the Christmas that the people of Israel, though they never would have called it Christmas, they were longing for this coming of the Messiah, the one who would come and who would rescue His people from their sins, the one who would deliver them from all oppression. And today we're going to talk about the Christmas that actually was. The title of this sermon series is A Christmas for the Ages because it truly is a Christmas for the ages. Past, present, and future Christmas is timeless because it has always forever been in the very heart of God. So as we look today at the Christmas that was, the, the moment the entire Old Testament, everything we just watched on that video was leading up to, the prophesying, the preparation, when Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, came to rescue us from our sins. Let's think about that today. We've spent this past week as a church telling that story. The story of the Christmas that was, the real Christmas, that very first Christmas. And we always strive to tell that story as faithfully as we possibly can. As Ben said, we had over 2,700 people drive through our nativity in three nights. 781 vehicles worth of people. And, and it truly took the entire church. I mean, we had people that, that were preparing and planning months in advance. We had to rent animals. We, we had costumes that were prepared and fixed and ready for us. We had sets that were constructed and decorated and straw that was laid out, lights that were laid out, fires that were placed, the greenery that was put up. I mean, I could just go on and on and on about the work that went into that. And it wasn't so that we could say, hey, look at us, aren't we great? It wasn't to pat us and ourselves on the back. It's because we long to tell the people around us the good news that Christ is born. And so thank you for what you did this past week to help tell that very story. So let's think about that this morning. The, the real story of that first Christmas. You know, We like to sing about the quiet little town of Bethlehem and the silent night on which Jesus was born. But, and we love those beautiful songs, but those songs tend to sort of gloss over the gritty, real-world details of the night that Jesus was born. I mean, the stable was hardly the picturesque scene that we see on our Christmas cards. And I'm sure the baby Jesus did cry. And those animals weren't still and quiet, and they didn't smell that great either as any of you that were around them this past week know. But beyond even those immediate circumstances in which Jesus was born, we also need to understand the world into which Jesus was born. Jesus came into a world that was filled with sorrow and pain. A world filled with sorrow and pain. I mean, with, like I said, with apologies to a way in a manger, I'm sure maybe Jesus crying, he did make. And just maybe... Those cries from baby Jesus were more than just the typical cries 
of a newborn. Perhaps His cries were finally joining with our cries. Maybe they were the cries of a holy, loving Creator God groaning with His creation. As Paul says in Romans 8.22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. See, God is not blind nor indifferent to the fallen condition of His creation. He hears the cries of His people. He has always been intimately connected with and concerned with the destiny of humanity. And that is why from Genesis 3 onward, God has been at work preparing a people through whom He would someday bring redemption to the world. It may seem at times as if God is distant and uncaring. And, and with the prophets, sometimes we might say, How long, O Lord, will this wickedness last? How long will people continue to hurt and take advantage of others? How long will you be silent? And true, there have been prolonged periods where God was silent at work, behind the scenes. Think about the 400 years of silence while Israel was enslaved in Egypt. But God finally spoke to Moses. And in Exodus 3, said, The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God saw, God heard, and God came down to rescue. Of course, we know there's another 400-year period of silence between the last book of the Old Testament and the birth of Jesus in the New Testament. But this 400-year silence is broken not by our cries, but by God's cries. Jesus cried out with His creation. He cried out because humanity was broken by sin. Pain and sorrow were never meant to be a part of God's plan for His good and perfect world, but pain and sorrow are the result of our wicked rebellion against our Creator. And so from the moment that Adam and Eve took that fruit that God told them not to eat, and they bit into that, we've been separated from the very source of life and love and joy and peace. We have followed a path whose end is death and destruction and eternal separation from God. Jesus came into that world, a world filled with pain and sorrow. But it was also a world filled with chaos. Let's look together at Luke chapter 2. We heard a few of these verses this morning, but let's read verses 1 through 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Basically, Jesus was born on tax day. It was April 15th, the joyous time of year. 
The Roman government had ordered everybody to go to their ancestral hometown and to register in this census, not because Rome was interested in keeping up with census numbers. They were using that to levy taxes. And so Mary and Joseph had to travel to Bethlehem, their ancestral hometown. Now, Bethlehem was not a large town. It was a small town, but it was within less than a day's journey from Jerusalem. And it was the hometown of of David, Israel's greatest king. So there were lots of people descending on this little town for this one day. And that's why Joseph couldn't find a quiet, safe, private place for Mary to have her child. The best they could find was a stable, possibly in a nearby cave. I mean, it would not have been any mother's preferred place to have a baby, right, ladies? I mean, that's no, you would not pick a stable or a cave to have a baby, but it was warm and dry and filled with soft hay. And yeah, there were some sheep and some cows, but you know, Jesus' birth was scary. It was a chaotic experience for Mary and Joseph. Away from home, in less than ideal conditions, her mother wasn't there to hold her hand. And they were under suspicion back home because here's Mary pregnant and she and Joseph aren't quite married yet. Can you even begin to imagine how these two young people must have felt? Yet God came into this broken, pain, and sorrow-filled and chaotic world at a time and a place where corrupt and wicked men ruled with iron fists. We know from history that Caesar, like Caesar Augustus mentioned here, they were worshipped as gods. But these men were wicked these men were, were powerful, and they used their power to use and abuse others for their own pleasure and their own egos. Herod was no different. Herod wasn't even a Jew, but he was the puppet king who exploited the Jewish people through taxes and forced labor so he could fund his building projects. And he loved to build palaces and fortresses and theaters and, yes, even the temple in Jerusalem. He was a suspicious fearful, insecure man who murdered his own family in order to protect his power. In Isaiah 9-2, God it right when it prophesied, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. See, the real Christmas story is about so much more than just a young Jewish couple having a baby away from home in a stable. It's about more than just a child in a manger or shepherds on a hillside. It's about light dining, dawning on those in darkness. It's about life coming to those living in the land of the shadow of death. John 1 gives us the heavenly perspective. It gives us the cosmic Christmas story. We don't usually read this account very often at Christmas time, but I want you to look on the screen or in your Bibles at John chapter 1 and listen to Christmas from heaven's perspective. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not understood it. He was in the world. 
And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. The message, paraphrase, says that He moved into the neighborhood. And we have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth full of grace and truth. Jesus came into a world that was lost, empty, dark, but He was full of what this world needed most. He was full of life and light and grace and truth. The Word becoming flesh was huge. The Christmas story isn't just some nice bedtime tale that we tell once a year. It is the epic account of the Word without beginning, who was in the beginning, stepping down into our world. It's the momentous occasion when light entered into darkness. Christmas is so much more than what we make of it. Is it any wonder the words, don't be afraid, pop up so often in these birth narratives? It's a story that should make us fearful, filled with awe and wonder at what God did for us. Because we tend to gloss over the details of the real story of the Christmas that was, we also tend to miss out on the real point of that first Christmas. Let's start back in verse 8 of Luke chapter 2. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, And lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom His favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. What is the point of this story? The point of Christmas, of Jesus being born. It isn't gift-giving. It isn't even the, the importance of family or man's goodwill toward man. No, the real point of Christmas is in that first stanza in the angel's song. 
glory to God. That's the point of Christmas. It's glory to God. When the angels appeared over that field, that's what they sang. They didn't sing Jingle Bells or Frosty the Snowman or even Mary Did You Know. No, they sang glory to God in the highest. The point of Christmas is all about God's glory. John Piper famously wrote, God is most glorified when you are most satisfied in Him. So think for just a moment. If you took away all the presents and parties and pies, would you still be 100% satisfied with Christmas? Is worshiping Jesus and celebrating His birth enough Christmas for you? If you were giving God glory in the highest, if you understand the real point of Christmas, then your answer to that question should be yes. Let's read another cosmic account of the Christmas story. In fact, this account, many scholars believe, was the first written account of the birth of Jesus. It was written long before Matthew or or Luke were written. It's in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Paul says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be hung on to and used for his own advantage. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him, to the highest place, and gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Don't miss out on that last verse. Notice again, all this happened for the glory of God the Father. I pray that we would keep that in perspective this Advent and Christmas. That it's not about us. It's not about you or me or our holiday cheer. It's not so that we can be filled with sentimental memories of Christmases long ago. It's for and about the glory of God. See, we we tend to sentimentalize and sterilize the details of that first Christmas. And so we overlook the real point of that first Christmas, which is the glory of God. And because of that, we kind of miss out on what the real miracle of that first Christmas was. Now, don't get me wrong, there are a lot of miraculous elements in that first Christmas for us to to celebrate and, and, and to be in awe of. But what is the real miracle of Christmas? Is it the appearance of angels? Is it the star with a tail as big as a kite that led the wise men to Bethlehem? Is it the virgin birth? Is it the incarnation? Our holy, limitless God putting on flesh and bone and limiting Himself into human form? Now certainly those are all amazing miracles. And the incarnation and virgin birth are two of the great mysteries of the Christian faith. But I believe the greatest miracle of Christmas, again, is found in the second verse of that first Christmas song ever sung. Glory to God in the highest. That's the point of Christmas. 
But the real miracle is peace on earth. Goodwill to men. The incarnation. The virgin birth. The appearance of angels. It was through these miracles that the real miracle of Christmas was made possible. And that is peace on earth. And it isn't talking about peace between warring nations. It's not sort of the the hippie kind of peace dude sort of thing. It isn't even peace between men. It's peace with men. It's a peace between the Creator God and His creation, men and women. It's peace between the holy God and wicked men and women. As Paul said in Colossians 1.21, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Paul said again in Romans 5.10, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? See, we were God's enemies. Lost. Dead in our sins. But in Christ Jesus, we are found. We are made eternally alive. We are adopted to become His sons and daughters. We, who are citizens of the dominion of darkness, are transferred into the kingdom of light. That is the real miracle of Christmas. Amen? And that is good news that leads to great joy for all the people. See, the biblical definition of peace is far more than just the absence of conflict. The Hebrew word shalom, in fact, means wholeness, restoration, completeness. It's the way God intends our world and our lives to be. That's what Jesus meant when He said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And then he says, I do not give to you as the world gives. So the peace that God gives is not like the peace that the UN is trying to accomplish and failing miserably at. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. The miracle of peace that Jesus came to bring is so much more than the absence of conflict. As it says in today's Advent devotional reading, It's not the absence of conflict. It's the presence of Jesus. The only one who can give us shalom. You see, Jesus takes the broken parts of our lives and our relationships and our hopes and our dreams. He takes the broken pieces of our world and He makes them whole again. Jesus restores us to how God intended us to be all along. Now, let's be honest. We tend to live fractured lives, don't we? Paul described it in terms of being at war with himself. Maybe you can relate. Paul said, it's like the things I don't want to do are the things I do, and the things I want to do are the very things I don't do. You know, can you understand that? Can you ever feel that way sometimes? You know, it's like trying to break an old, you know, bad habit or trying to establish a new habit. Maybe you're trying to change the way you eat, get on a diet, exercise, Maybe it's trying to read your Bible every day. We seem to struggle at doing those things that we know we should do. We live fractured lives. 
we compartmentalize our lives into, well, this is me at home, and this is me at work, and me at school, and this is me on the weekend. We tend to be different people depending on where we are, what we're doing, or who we're with. And that causes unbelievable stress on ourselves because we're not experiencing peace, wholeness, shalom. We're broken, double-minded, with wrong priorities and divided loyalties. We're not being true to who we really are, to the self that God made us to be and is saving us to be. Take the word integrity. Right? I mean, we think about the word integrity. What does that mean? If you have integrity, it means you're consistent, right? It means that you are who you say you are. It means you're the same person everywhere you are, no matter what you're doing. Well, the root of this word integrity is a French word that means the same thing as shalom. It means wholeness, completeness. Consider other words with that same root, like integrated. Right? Integrated is where different things are brought together to form a whole. They're integrated. Think of the word for, for all of you math nerds out there, integer. Remember what an integer is? An integer is a whole number. It's the opposite of a fraction. Jesus came that first Christmas to take our fractions and to turn them into integers. Jesus came to take all the disparate parts of our lives, all those spinning plates, you know, that you try to keep going and you thought they are going to come crashing down any moment. He came to take all of those and to integrate them into one purpose-driven life. He came to give us integrity, to make us whole and complete, mature, lacking nothing. Take another couple of words. Our English words, holy and whole, they both share the same Germanic root. They mean the same thing, to be integrated, to be one, without blemish, without fracture. So when Jesus gives us His peace, He removes our sin. He washes us clean. He makes us pure and righteous before God. When we are made holy, we are made whole, one person, integrated. I'm the same today, tomorrow, the next day, because I know that I'm standing before the one and holy God. That is peace. That is shalom. One of the songs from my favorite Christmas album by Andrew Peterson, Behold the Lamb of God, puts it this way, kind of paraphrases the angel chorus like this. All glory be to God on high, and to the earth be peace. Goodwill henceforth from God to men begin and never cease. From the moment God became one of us, goodwill, peace, was made possible between God and humanity. And it will never cease. Everything changed because of 12 words spoken that first Christmas. A Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Now, what does that mean for us today? Well, here's the real challenge of Christmas for us today. I want to challenge each of us to take a moment to push the pause button in the coming weeks and to spend some time with Jesus Remembering what's real this Christmas. That Jesus is full 
of love and grace and truth and peace and joy and hope, whatever it is that you're empty of, Jesus is ready to come and to bring you His fullness. Jesus wants to come into your chaotic world and bring His peace. He wants to enter your pain and sorrow and cry with you and then help you find healing and joy. Jesus wants to move into your neighborhood and take up residence with you. And Jesus wants to come, wants you to come to Him just as you are. You know, He doesn't ask us to clean up our act first. He doesn't ask us to get all our ducks in a row first. The good news of Christmas that brings great joy is that a Savior has been born to you. He has come to clean up your mess. Only Jesus can properly arrange our ducks for us. Isn't that good news? That's why He came. To set everything right. To fix all the brokenness. To make us whole and holy. To bring life where there had previously been death. Light where there before was darkness. This morning, will you open up your heart to Jesus? Let Him move into your life and take up residence with you. Will you allow Jesus to bring glory to God through you and bring the peace of heaven to you? Take a moment right now and consider where there is brokenness, pain, sorrow, or chaos in your life. Think about that. Are you thinking about it? Where is there brokenness in your life this morning? Where do you have pain and sorrow? How is your life just spinning out of control? Give it to Jesus. Consider for a moment where you feel as if you are empty. And ask Jesus to fill you with what you need. Think about where you feel pulled in different directions, or maybe even pulled apart, let Jesus come and integrate you into one whole and holy, peaceful self so that you can live for the glory of God. And one last thing. If you feel that way, who else do you know that feels that way? Who do you know that is broken? in dealing with pain and sorrow and chaos? Who do you know whose life feels a little out of control? Will you help share this good news of great joy with them? Remember the shepherds' reaction when they saw Jesus. They worshipped and then they witnessed. We have come this morning to worship the King that was born in Bethlehem. But when we leave this place, will we go to those others who are broken and need of His peace and witness to them? Would you stand and respond as God leads as we sing?